Boy, I tell you folks, as we have continued to work our way through Romans chapter 8, I, I just love this chapter. I think what we're learning is just incredible. Uh, this developing this concept, this idea that the very Holy Spirit of God would live in us. And that didn't happen because of the good house I built. That didn't happen because of how I cleaned up for God to come and live in me. That happened because of a work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it was his work that took this from being a house, from being a life condemned, making it a house that God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit would come and live in me. And as he lives there, he enables, he helps you and I to follow Jesus Christ. Our only challenge now is just yield control. It's no longer about being enough, doing a good enough, cleaning up enough. It's yielding control day by day, moment by moment to the Holy Spirit. That becomes the one guiding principle, the, the one guiding question of our lives. Did I yield control in that conversation, in that response, in that decision, in just how I lived, how I worked and what I did every single day? Did I yield control? Now, yielding control is a big thing, isn't it? We don't necessarily like somebody to have control over our life. We want that control over what we're doing and where we're going and how we do it. But last week, we saw in Romans 8 that when we yield control to the Holy Spirit, what He does with that control, under His control, He carries us to a place where we are continually assured that we belong to Him. He carries us to a place, a growth, an intimacy in our relationship with the Lord where the Almighty becomes our daddy. He carries us to a place under His control where we see, we live in our worth and our value as adopted children of God. That's our position. What an awesome position. We are children of the King. That's not what's going to be one day. That's what is right now. Isn't that awesome? Now, there is a question that comes with that. Do you feel like a child of the king? You know, in the last nine years, I have done 13 funerals for people under the age of 50. Two of those were under the age of three. One of those was a murder. In that same time period, I've, I don't know a number, it'd be over 100, maybe over 200 families here in our church, not in the community, right here in our church family that have been touched, been devastated by just one of three common words we hear in our culture. Divorce, job loss, these things that are wreaking havoc, cancer. And those are just the headlines. Those are just the big things. We're not even going to talk about man, daily problems. The car breaks, broken rela relationships, trouble at work, trouble at home, trouble at school, backbiting, fighting, being overlooked, being forgotten. I mean, we could talk about daily problems the rest of the day, couldn't we? And we're not even going to talk about gas prices. <laughs> not, not even going to get started on that. But now here's the thing. Those are just problems common to purse people. But guess what? There's actually a set of problems that can come with being a Christian, right? Different ways and different times and places. There's certainly the, the opportunity when you carry the name, when you bear the name of Christ to, to be made fun of, to be mocked, to be left out, to be wrongly treated. And that's on the low end. 
There's other times, there's other places where it can be much worse than that. I think many of us have been familiar with, some of us have been praying for a a gentleman by the name of Youssef in Iran this winter, who was arrested, tried, convicted, and has been sentenced to hang by the neck until death. For one thing, he's a Christian. That's what's going on in our world today. And that's not one weird, isolated, very rare story that is going on all over the world today. People are paying with their lives to bear the name Jesus Christ. So I think it's safe to say we've got some problems in the world. As a matter of fact, you can have even more problems in the world as you try to walk with Christ. And so as you look at this, as you weigh all this, it's not a a big leap to kind of say, hey Lord, is there like any real advantage to this whole being child of the king thing? I mean, I believe you, I believe your word, but I'm getting my teeth kicked in down here. How might God respond to that? You know, as we go through scriptures, I think one of the biggest topics in scripture is evil and suffering in our world today and how we walk with God to that how we relate with God through that our passage today brings us to to one of those passages where we see how God might answer the question why do children of the king suffer let's look and see what he says would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 25 is what we're looking at today. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. I hope you'll grab one or have somebody hand it to you and let's read that together. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul continues to write in this letter to the Romans and he says there, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Interesting passage on suffering to follow right on the heels last week of describing this incredible position that we have in in God. But I think by the very fact that this passage does follow, I mean from one word right to the next, the fact that it does follow that great position that we have in God, God is acknowledging. God is aware of the question in us. Hey, if I'm a child of the King, shouldn't it be better than this? Shouldn't it be working out a lot better down here if I'm in that position? And we see God immediately begin to answer that question. And I see in this passage just two very simple things that God says about why a child of the king might suffer. First thing he says here is that suffering is a part of a process 
that ends in glory. Suffering is a part of a process that ends in glory. Look back at verse 17. Very powerful last phrase. I didn't even touch on it last week. We looked at this verse last week, but I didn't even go to this part of the verse. You see there, it unites together. Remember being called a co-heir with Christ, but then it takes us immediately to suffering. It links suffering and glory. Suffering is a part of a process that ends in glory. And that will end when you and I are standing there right next to Christ, like we're brothers. Like you and I actually belong there. We will stand there right next to Christ and heir to heaven with all of heaven out in front of us. That's the glory. That is what we are patiently waiting for, it says in verse 25. This is our hope, that moment, that day. And that moment, that day is a position of glory for Jesus too. That's the moment when He will be recognized by all of creation as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It'll be at this moment that every knee that's ever been created, every tongue that has ever been created will confess, will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a great moment of glory, but think about Christ in that spot. Think about the path that took Him to that spot. It was a path of suffering, wasn't it? How appropriate today that we arrive at this passage at the same time as we come to this table because this table is a place of suffering and glory. I think we're very well aware of the suffering. We know these elements, the, the bread and the juice, it represents the, the spilled blood of Jesus Christ, the broken body of Jesus. We're reminded of the cross where there was intense emotional, physical, spiritual suffering we're going to remember that today. We're going to remember that what you and I enjoy came at a very high cost. But do you remember that night there in the upper room when Jesus shared this with the disciples? You remember he said, you know, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it again with you in where? Glory. Jesus links together the, the glory and the suffering. It's a part of a process. You say, but why? Why did it have to be that when you get to heaven? Ask the Lord. It's what he says. It will be a part of the process. Do you know what you and I learn in suffering? We learn Christ. You may learn Christ more in suffering than at any other time, any other place, any other moment, any other kind of event. We learn Christ in suffering. You say, how do we do that? Let me give you one word. I'm not saying only one word comes with this. I'm just for the moment this morning, I'm saying, hey, let's just talk about one thing we learn in suffering. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. You know, if you stop and think about it, and I know you know this, but do we stop and remember? Do you realize Jesus was faithful no matter how much pain he endured? Have you endured pain? Jesus was faithful even though he was punished when he had never done wrong. Have you been falsely accused? Jesus was faithful no matter how much he was rejected when all he ever did was good. You ever been rejected in a place, in a moment where all you were trying to do was the right thing and the good thing? He was faithful in that moment. You ever felt like somebody didn't respect you for who you were? Didn't respect you for what you had done. Jesus was faithful. No matter the fact that he was never respected. Talk about not 
being recognized for who you are, the very Son of God. But he was faithful. We learn faithfulness in suffering. And faithfulness ends in glory. Now, while suffering teaches us great lessons, one of them being faithfulness, you know what? Praise the Lord. The Scripture doesn't tell us to go look for suffering. I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. It doesn't say go look for it. It doesn't say manufacture it. Folks, it's as simple as this. If you love God and if you're living for God in this world that has rejected God, suffering will come to you. It might come to you very lightly and infrequently. You're made fun of at school one day. You're kind of mocked at work one day. Or it might come much worse than that, like a Pastor Youssef, and it may cost your life for following Christ. You don't have to manufacture it. You don't have to look for it. And when that suffering comes, it says we bear it with patience. 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 You know, folks, I, I think when we suffer in our world, when we see our culture changing around us, have you noticed that believers make a lot of demands on society, don't we? We kind of expect retailers to give us Christian values in a Christian world. We kind of expect the government to give us Christian values in a Christian world. That may be kind of weird. I can't find anywhere in Scripture where God says the government owes me that. I'm not a big boycotter. I might be wrong, that's just an opinion. I'm not a big boycotter because I don't see in Scripture where God commands retailers to give me a Christian world and values. You know what the Scripture tells me? It says, Randy, you owe the government a Christian value and Christian world. It says you owe the retailers Christian values and a Christian world. Isn't it interesting how we look around in our world and we expect them to be Christian? Let me ask you a question. With that person, that retailer, that government that you expect to be Christian, have you ever shared the gospel with them? Why do we have an expectation of lost people to be anything but lost? Why do we have an expectation of a fallen world to be anything but fallen? It is you and I that carry light and grace and the gospel into that world. And we will suffer for it. Because guess what? We are children of the King. And this world is at war with that King. Why would we think we experience any less? And in the midst of that, God gives this great promise. Romans 8.18, needle point it, put it on a pillow, hang it on the wall, stick it on the refrigerator, memorize it, etch it on your heart. One of the best verses in all the Bible. Because God says here, you know what? When you get to the end of all this, you will not look back and say, that wasn't worth it. That's an incredible promise, isn't it? Now think about that. God is saying that both to me. Oh, I was made fun of over here. Oh, they, they joke about me at work. I was passed up for a promotion because of this. That, that kind of suffering all the way down to the guy who's being hung. God puts us all in the same category. But I'd say, oh God, I don't want to be in the same category as that guy. He suffered much worse than me. Folks, it's irrelevant how much we suffer all of our suffering goes in one category because the glory we're going to receive is so much bigger, so much greater. It makes all kinds of suffering, big and small, infrequent, or every single day. It just all pales in comparison. We're not going to get to the end and say, that wasn't worth it. Do you believe that? Yeah, we do want to say we believe that. In here, in this room, at this hour, yeah, we believe that. Can I ask you a question? What effect is that belief having in your life? 
You see, I think saying I believe that means I now have more motivation, more drive to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable, to serve the unworthy. No, if you love and serve and forgive, you suffer. But wait a minute, I said there's no amount of suffering I'll endure in this world. I said that I believe the glory will far outweigh that. Folks, this hope is not a warm glass of milk on a stormy night. This hope sends us back into the storm to love God and to live for God faithfully. When we suffer, God says it's a part of the process, but it ends in glory. Second thing that God says to us in this passage about why we, children of the king, man, I look around the prince and princess of England, they don't look like they're suffering. Why would we, children of the king, suffer? God says, hey, <laughs> newsflash, you live in a broken world. You live in a broken world. God, I didn't hand it to you that way. The world I handed you didn't have weeds in it. The body I handed you wouldn't get cancer. What happened? Oh, God put this rule over us. One rule. One rule. One place that we would acknowledge that He's God. One place that we would say we trust that all that is right, all that is good comes from you and we need look nowhere else. One rule. And you know what? You and I were deceived into thinking, how dare somebody put a rule over me? How dare somebody try to direct my... Nobody's going to tell me what I can do and what I can't do. And we seized our freedom to find ourselves shackled to the worst possible slavery that could ever be known. Enslaved to sin and death. And we unleashed forces in this world that would cause an infinite amount of accidents. An infinite amount of problems and an infinite way of creating a bad day. We unleash that. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought God was in control. I thought God was good. I thought He would protect us from all Why didn't God stop all that from happening? He was in control. And in His control, He creates places and ways for you and I to choose to honor that control. To give glory to that control. Or we can choose to rebel against it. And so in God's control, not His desire, but in His design, He allowed for this to happen. And He tells us in this passage that this chaos that you and I have brought into the world, that won't be the final statement. This creation will be fixed. It will be restored. All will be made right again. But there's a timing to it. There's a purpose that is still being worked out. There's a plan of God that is still unfolding. And, and until that timing gets here, boy, it says here that we groan. Well, we understand that. Have you groaned recently? We groan. And gosh, it says, you know, did you ever see this? It's not just you and me that groans. It says we've drug all of creation into this. And the good news, as children of the King, when we go to glory, we'll drag creation with us till that too. But right now, creation groans. The rocks, the trees, the skies, the seas, the lion and the birds, they groan for the chaos we brought into this world. We groan. We groan through the flu. We groan through the hurricane. We groan through the broken relationships. And finally, we will groan in death. And if you're a believer, boy, think about what we've seen in Romans 7 and the first part of Romans 8. We groan at a civil war that wages in us. 
a war between our flesh and our spirit, but we groan with hope. The groan does not win. We will be restored. Creation will be restored. We will realize that salvation. We will realize that adoption. We will come into glory. And folks, this is an assurance. It is a promise. It's not wishful thinking. And it is the body and it is the blood of Jesus Christ that bought it and that guarantees it. How appropriate we come to this hope and remember, man, it's not, I'm not hoping in me. I'm not hoping in you. I'm not hoping in all of us together because I've seen me and I've seen you. I've seen all of us together. We can still mess it up, can't we? Man, our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in what He did and what He purchased. We come now, folks, to a time to remember that, to celebrate that. To be motivated and energized to carry that hope back out into the world that we expect to be Christian. No, folks, you and I are expected to be Christian. We come to this table to celebrate, to remember that hope, to give thanks to God for that hope. But you know, as we come to this table, we also come to confess, don't we? Because in this past week, in this past month, you and I have lived in ways, we've acted in ways, we've had attitudes, we've had thoughts that are very, very contradictory to the hope that we say we have, aren't they? And I say, I've got this hope. I say, I'm resting everything on this guarantee. And then I go out there and I think like that and I act like that and I talk like that. I judge and I cast condemnation, but I don't cast the gospel. I don't cast light. I just expect them all to create a world that I'm comfortable with. Create a world that I like and has my values. You ever thought about demanding that a world give you certain values that sometimes you and I aren't even very good at living? So we come to this table and we confess, God, I'm so grateful for this hope. And I'm so sorry that I don't live very well in light of it. In a moment, our deacons will begin to pass out these elements. The choir and orchestra is going to lead in a song of worship. This is a time for us just to be still and quiet. Confess those sins of yesterday, this past week, this past winter. And you know, because of the body and blood of Jesus, you want to know some great news? Whatever, that's a big word, isn't it? Whatever you confess, 1 John 1, 9, God says, I will forgive you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you can hear our prayers, each and every one, as if we're in here alone with you. God, I thank you that while I'm ashamed, I step now into the light of your grace and I confess sins. Thank you that in this time of confession, you hear, you forgive, you restore. And God, we want to be restored to that hope. We want to go out and live that hope. Instead of demanding that the world be Christian, we want to go out there and live so Christ-like that the world pursues what we have. God, would you move and work? Heal and minister in this time. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. On the, night, <clears throat> on the night before he was crucified, 
Jesus said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take and eat. On that same night, he said, this cup is my blood shed for you to purchase for you a new covenant, a new agreement, a new commitment between you and God. Take and drink. Let's pray. Father, I know all through the Psalms you love to hear the words, thank you. Words that acknowledge your goodness. Words that acknowledge your gift. They're words that you've given us. And yet, Lord, even though these are the words that we have, they seem so trite and so small when we come before you to say, thank you for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for a mercy and a grace that allows us to be forgiven, to be adopted, to become your child, a child of the King, to become a life that you would live in, to be given a promise that no matter what we endure, no matter what we go through in this life, in this world, that what is to come will be so far greater that no comparison can be made. How awesome you are, God. Thank you for that hope. Holy Spirit living in me, would you empower me, enable me, would you help me to live in that hope? Guide me into how that hope should shape the way I think, the way I relate, and how I act in this fallen, sinful world. Help me, Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.